0: Hi everyone, welcome to Writer's Book Club for this month. This is a podcast where we take a deep dive with an author into the writing, craft and process behind one of their books. I'm Michelle Barraclough and this month I had the really great pleasure of chatting with Australian novelist, now turned wanderer of the English Downs, John Purcell, about his latest novel, The Lessons. We had one of those really wonderful, long, meandering chats, not just about John's novel, but about lots of other books too. We discovered that we have a mutual love for E.M. Forster's A Room with a View and why it's such a perfect novel. And John shared the fascinating method he used to learn from the classics way back when. And of course, we talked about the creation of his novel, The Lessons, how he wrote four first-person narratives, how he overcame a lifelong aversion to spreadsheets to help structure the novel afterwards, and the importance of talking to yourself, preferably while walking over the Kent Downs. John also shared the thrills and spills of the editing process for this novel. In a word, brutal. So for those of you who haven't yet read the lessons, here's the blurb. What if your first love was your one and only chance of happiness? So in 1961, when teens Daisy and Harry meet, it feels so right they promise to love each other forever, but everything's stacked against them, class, education, expectations. After Daisy is sent by her parents to live with the glamorous bohemian Aunt Jane, a novelist working on her second book, she's confronted by adult truths and suffers a loss of innocence that flings her far from the one good thing in her life, Harry. Flash forward to 1983. Jane Curtis, now a famous novelist, is at a prestigious book event in New York, being interviewed about the overlap between her life and her work, including one of her novels about the traumatic coming of age of a young woman. I wonder who that could be. But she evades the interviewer's probing questions. What is she trying to hide? The Lessons is an intriguing, striking, powerful novel. It tells a compelling story about literature, love and betrayal, about how far writers will go in plundering their own lives for their art, and about how much we're prepared to forgive, if we forgive. Now, let me tell you a little bit about John Purcell. While he was still in his 20s, he opened a second-hand bookshop in Sydney, in which he sat for 10 years reading, ranting and writing. Since then, he's written, under a pseudonym, a series of successful novels, and as part of his previous role as director of books at Booktopia, he's interviewed hundreds of writers about their work. Then, he wrote his own novel. The Girl on the Page was a runaway bestseller, and a film adaptation is in the works. He now lives in the English countryside with his wife, three dogs, four cats, and his overly large book collection. I hope you enjoy this deep dive with John into his novel, The Lessons. Hello, John. Thank you very much for coming on the
1: podcast. It's a great pleasure.
0: Now, you've been back in the UK for a couple of months. Did you take the Australian summer back with you? It's been a bit warm over there, hasn't it?
1: I am seriously considering whether I have some kind of magical powers. Um, I I have brought ruin to England since (laughs) I arrived. I've brought Boris. I've brought Brexit. I've brought COVID. I brought the COVID response. And now I've brought drought, which is unheard of in England, but everything is brown here. It looks just like home. I'm terraforming England to make it look like home.
0: (laughs) You came in like a wrecking ball. I did. Now, John, speaking of weather, thank you for transporting all of your Australian fans to the south of France with this beautiful novel, The Lessons. Everyone's talking about your south of France sections in this novel, aren't they?
1: Yeah, well, I mean... I, I had a holiday because I was in the middle of lockdown. I'd come all the way to Europe um, and couldn't see Europe. I was stuck at home. I uh, couldn't go more than five miles away from the house and all that. And so when I turned to the section on South of France, I really went for it. You know, I gave myself <laughs> a bloody good holiday. Get, and then, you know, by doing that, I've given all these, all these readers a bloody good holiday as well. It oh, is yeah. gorgeous down there, and I made it even more gorgeous.
0: You absolutely did. When they were swimming off the off the rocks every day, it was just like, oh, I could just imagine it and picture it. Just so wanted to be there. It was beautiful.
1: Yeah, and, and hope that 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 desire was was definitely mine at the time. So I'm glad I conveyed that.
0: You sure did. So, John, the first question I wanted to ask you was really what inspired this novel, and how did that kickstart your thinking that actually this could be a novel? What was the the impetus?
1: It, it, the Impetus was really a dinner I had with my wife and my friend Andrew. He, we, were, we were in London. We, we were just doing that whole, I just arrived and, and he was already here and we had a had a bit of a dinner in, in the middle of London. And I was kind of stuck because I had this book deal and I had to write a novel and I was writing a novel at the time. I'd spent a lot of time on a novel and I just wasn't digging it. You know? I, could, I probably could have finished it, but it wasn't in me and I didn't, uh, you know I had the skills and I had the time and I had the patience and all that stuff but I wasn't feeling it and I told them that and then you know both of them sort of came across almost at the same time with well if you were to write something you know if there was something that you really wanted to write what would you write And I was like and, and you know you're free to and there's no no nothing to fear you know, just go go for it and I said, well I'd pick up my old man's story and they're like what old man's story and it's something I, I wrote, early 90s, I started this story and realised I was too dumb to finish it. And I just left him on a couch until I'd grown up and I could finish him. And it was thinking about that story after that dinner, in the weeks after that dinner, while still tapping away and filling pages with a novel that no one's ever going to see. When the old man's younger self started talking to me, that's what happened. I was out on my walks and my daily allowance, and I had this young guy started talking to me, and I was right in the middle, walking the, the the Kent Downs. It is the picture postcard, right? It is, it is rolling hills. It is green. It wasn't until the drought. It was green. These gorgeous old houses prop up. You go down over over hill and down dale and all that stuff, and I was immersed in it you know I was in his world and and it was where I'd actually set the book you know in the early 90s so I was back and in his territory but he was young and he had a much better story to tell me and so he just started to tell me and I started to jot down in my phone little bits and pieces that as I walked that he told me and that was that was really the beginning of it a lot of my my writing starts with conversation with with dialogue with bits and pieces and so I just kept jotting him down while still typing the other stupid thing until I knew that I had to kind of take him seriously. And because Andrew and and Tamsin had said, go for the thing you really feel, which is the most obvious thing to say to a writer and not something that I really needed to hear at the time. I did. I just started to write Harry. And so I wrote Harry's narrative from beginning to end. And so the, the book was a pantser. From that point, I went from hearing this voice to writing down his story. And I just went, I'll just do it. I'll just follow him. And I did. I just followed him from beginning to end. And then I sat back and went, what is this? What have I done? What is this thing? And I really wasn't sure at that stage.
0: Yeah, right. So Harry just started talking to you and then the rest of the characters came after that. Like, did you write that whole Harry section first?
1: Yeah, the whole Harry section just came down straight away. So it had the arc, it had the whole thing. It had had Daisy, it had Simon, it had Jane, it had everyone in it. Yeah. But I knew it wasn't enough. I knew I was missing stuff. I knew that it was really Harry's perspective on things and that Harry's view was limited because we all are limited to what we can see and what we can experience. And Mm. Harry's experience... All this moment, this life-changing moment of meeting Daisy, was very narrow, and so his view of everything was going to be the narrowest view of everything. But he was all, he also had a a poetic edge to him. He was a, he felt deeply, which shocked him. There was all these things about Harry which I find really endearing, as as the the sort of the, the more sensitive man comes out of this hardened shell. And I've always I've always found. Hard men showing emotion to be you know compelling i've always been i've always been drawn to that in any in any form whether it's film or 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 song or in novels or poetry
0: so you would um, have loved written. a bit of d h Lawrence back in the day
1: exactly yeah where where you can just it just breaks open as a crack and and yeah and you see that wonderful heart so Harry existed, and I had that story, and I was like. I really, at that point, I said to myself, well, I've got to start thinking about this seriously. I've got to start thinking of this as a, as a novel and thinking of this like a novelist and I can't be a pantser from here on. I have to really work out what I'm going to do.
0: Yeah, I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. I absolutely loved The Girl on the Page and I was so delighted to see that one of the main characters in The Lessons is a writer what is it about books and writing and literature that made you want to revisit that world again in the lessons, John?
1: I've, I've been asked this before, and I, I, I feel like I give a different answer. Okay. time. that's good. Because I, I, I feel differently as, as things go by. And I think writers, because they're observing everything and because they want to know everything or because their trade requires them to know so much, they are great characters for that because there's really nothing that, that they can't really know. So if you wanted to put them in and have some ridiculous opinion about engineering, then there's bound to be something that a, a writer knows about engineering. So that way it's, they're very plastic, they're moldable. I can do things with, with a writer that I couldn't do. Also their observ- observations are always keen, clever, intelligent, that kind of thing. They see things other people don't see. So they're great narrators. Of, of life because they're examining, pulling apart and all that sort of stuff. So you can get a deeper richness. So it's a kind of a cheat having a, a writer in there. But on, on, on another aspect of it is I fell heavily for literature in the last year of AHSC and I did not stop reading You know the, the, the books that were, were considered the great works for something like 10, 15 years, just non-stop reading from that point. And I was obsessed with the craft and how the hell they managed to do it. And so I was drawn to author biographies and memoirs and letters. And so I in order to try and work it out, you know so I, I spent a lot of my initial years reading, jotting down bits and pieces that popped in my head as I was doing it, but not seriously thinking of writing in that initial phase. It was more how do they how do they manage to to do all that stuff and i i kind of i kind of got led from writer to writer from writer to books on history from writers to from novels to to poetry all these kinds of different things led me to different places so the, the initial reaction from from reading was i have to know more i have to know more about all this stuff these guys know a, a lot and so I, I spent a lot of time doing that i did write in that early phase i, I, I wrote a novel when I was 21 which was pretty much a, a a memoir which was turned into a novel but I really wasn't seriously examining how to do all that I just did it on the fly it was the thing I did it was later when I was really diving into the biographies of writers that I really got obsessed with their lives and their characters and no two writer no two writers are the same they're Psychologies are so different, and each writer will declare what writers are like, uh, which I always find funny because they're always saying the opposite of the last writer that said what writers are like. I did, last night I watched a, a documentary on Truman Capote and Tennessee Williams, and it was just, it was it was wonderful to watch, but it was also funny because they kept declaring things <laughs> you know, all the way through. <laughs> a writer is this or a writer is that and and you know and yes you can kind of nod along going yeah some writers are like that and some writers are that and and obviously you are like that because (laughs) that's your frame of reference but having interviewed you know hundreds of writers over the years and having asked them questions about this kind of stuff and having different answers plus all the reading that i've done in the past and all my all my interests in the past you know there is no real great answer to what makes a writer fascinating or what makes a writer tick and all that sort of stuff. I just find them endlessly fascinating because they're so different and so changeable and all these wonderful things that I'm drawn in. So it it makes perfect sense that they turn up in my writing and that mm-hmm. writers and books and literature turn up in my writing because it just spills out of me. It's my it's, it's what I've been doing.
0: Yeah, which also goes back to the advice that you got before to follow your passion and and follow where the heat is for you. Yeah. Did you find though, I mean, I did a literature degree and I found it didn't really teach me how to write. And and even those books that we we did read in our degrees and at the end of the HSE, because I did literature for the HSE as well. And same as you just went down rabbit holes with, you know, D. H. Lawrence and Jane Austen and the Russians and everybody, you know, just like, oh, I need to read more and more and more of every single author. There must be something about that age. It just makes you want to dive in. But they write so differently to how we write now, don't they?
1: What I took from a lot of the the writers of that sort that I read was I I would write down in my notebook by hand, like three or four pages at a time, of great scenes that I loved, that I wanted to keep a, a memory of. And by writing them out by hand... I've got a different experience of them, of course, because yeah. it's slower. You're thinking about each single word. I did this for years. Like <laughs> I didn't I had no idea that, that what I was doing was was kind of inhabiting someone else's writing for a bit. And so if I was reading Middlemarch or if I was reading Clarissa or if I was reading Sons of Lovers, you know, my notebooks would be just jam-packed with not thoughts of my own, but lovely bits from from Hardy, you know, standing in far from the madding crowd, looking at the sky and realizing the earth is turning—all these wonderful snippets. And on *Deronda*, there's a, a, a description of of Genoa that is just divine. And I wrote that down um, by hand, and I didn't—it wasn't in an attempt to learn how to write. That's not. It was just, mm-hmm. just love. <laughs> it made me, me want to write those things down. And so, unbeknownst to me, I had been doing this practice. I've been looking at how they've been doing this and sort of stuff. And now that I look back on a lot of these writers who I thought it was impossible, their writing was so dense and so clever and all that sort of stuff. When you actually look at the writing itself, it isn't so far from us. A lot of it is to do with their understanding of things that marks them out as so much better than, than the stuff I wrote this morning, you know? The writing itself is sometimes so clear and so easy to understand. And it is, we can learn a lot from it even though it was written 200 years ago and i find it it's it holds me up more it gives me more structure those kinds of writers than reading say rachel Cusk or ali smith who i adore i don't find i get the same they're, they're not a crutch to me they don't lift me and hold me as i write they're brilliant but i they're like me You know, yeah. they're, they're better than me but they're like me they're too they're too like me and they're too brief I think the structure of some of the older writers who take more time to, to lay things out because there was more time and because of the way things were published and because of the readership and everything, blah, blah, blah. It gives me more structure to hold on to than the modern writers. I find, I find modern writers make me feel so much so quickly and it's over. You know, it's, it's, it's 200 pages and it's gone and I, I feel bereft, but I don't. I can't clutch it. I can't hold it, while the other guys kind of, kind of can. And I think I, I, I probably got more out of things because I was dealing and writing out passages from Scarlet, Red and Black than than I was, you know, jotting down passages from Zadie Smith. say. you know, I think I think there's something about the way in which they did Because all these guys that I'm talking about, all the modern, they've all read those, right? So they've already regurgitated those. They've already that's already in their blood. You know, when when you talk about D.H. Lawrence, I mean Rachel Cusk's last book was pretty much a, a hymn to to Lawrence. But you know, if you're looking for Lawrence, you won't find him in those pages. But you know that she's eaten him. <laughs> you
0: know? Yeah, yeah, I feel like that about Ian e. Forster. I can pull off any of his books and just fall into the prose. And it, as you say, yeah, it lifts you up, doesn't it? Room with a View, I yeah. think, is probably it's almost a perfect novel.
1: For me, it is the best novel, it's my favorite. novel.
0: do you? It goes,
1: really? It, I've, read, I've read it probably seven or eight times. It, it to yeah, me too. is, yeah, it. I go back to it, I it doesn't even like I, I could have read it, you know, two months ago and I could pick it up and just be halfway through it again. Going, I'm halfway through it again. What am I doing here? Yeah, same.
0: You know? Oh my god, I didn't realize amazing. No, it's
1: amazing. It's my obsession, it's it is my obsession, and yeah. there, there are touches of, of, of room of the view within the lessons, yes, uh, that, that, that are there. I, I, I just couldn't help myself. The scene where Cecil is told by Lucy that their relationship's over mm. it gives me just by talking about it, it gives me goosebumps because yeah. he doesn't. That scene doesn't happen the way you expect it to happen. Right? He doesn't. He's a better man than the situation demands. Absolutely. Right? And,
0: and what and you expect? Is, you're not. You're not set up for him to react in that way either. You, you no, think that he'll go no, off because
1: because she's 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 been manhandling him and mm. telling a uh, kind of displaying him in a way that just isn't true to him. Mm. <laughs> you know? He's not right for her because she's in love with someone else. And you get this. And I love that. I love that such a, what, what people pass over in that book, they, you know, I, the number of times that you get people who talk about Forster and, and Austin and Gaskell and these ways that, that sort of reduce them into, into sort of love stories or into, into light fiction or whatever. And if you just think, Oh my God! You have to read it again. You have to go yeah. see more of what he's doing and what what an understanding of 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 people this guy had. I mean, I, I still read Howard's End, and every time oh, I love it. Uh, I I I'm getting closer to getting the meaning of it. I mean, his understanding of love in that book is so great, and I sort of creep towards it every time I read it. But I'll get a better understanding of what what it's all about because it's in that book. I can feel it's in that book and I'll get it one day.
0: But also his ah, the sense of humour, like the, the wit. yeah, It's brilliant. so understated and so perfect. I
1: love it. Yeah, yeah.
0: We digress. So he, he,
1: well, that's that's the model. I, mean, I look at those kind of fictions. I had a friend uh, years ago, you know, when I was so far at my own butt and I was convinced that to write you had to bore the reader you know, how uh, you had to, you know, and if, if, if a reader could really grasp what you were saying easily, then you're not a proper literary writer and all this bullshit. <laughs> and uh, a friend of mine pointed out that my favorite novels are written in a style that has been read by millions easily and conveys more and gives a deeper response to life than some of the tryhards that I had been reading and try to emulate. And when I look back and I looked at Austin, I looked at and I looked at even Fielding and Forster and even even Lawrence, you know, these aren't difficult books to read, but by God, they're punch. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And, I, I, and I was an idiot. And and so I've kind of I've kind of dragged myself into into a, a weird position because I still like the big ideas, but I want it as accessible as possible. And so I'm sitting in this my books sit in this awkward spot between literature and commercial fiction. Where people talk about it being a page turner, but also they hate me for certain things that are in there because they challenge their view of what the world should be about and how things should turn and that people shouldn't be that way and that and that sometimes they get angry because I reveal them re- reveal themselves to themselves those kind of things. But I've made it so easy that they're gobbling it down at the same time. So that that's kind of what I was trying to do. But sometimes I, I mean I know that I'm not reaching the things that I want to reach, and I know that. The pacing and everything puts a lot of people off, uh, who like a slower pace and who like to be treated with respect and intelligence and all this sort of stuff. But I mean, I almost feel like putting out two two versions of the one book and chucking in a few big annoying words just to make it sound more literary at the time. But you know, it's a, it's a battle that I don't want to win because I really want these things to be page turners, because that's the that's the ones that I love the most. <laughs> you know, yeah, the writers that I love the most are the most successful.
0: It's the curse of the novelist never to really reach the heights you want to reach, but the reader doesn't know that. The reader, you know, it wouldn't be a John Purcell if it was one or the other. It has to be both.
1: Yeah, it has to be. That's my that's how I feel I feel with these books that there's kind of a, a battle when it comes to the editing stage to sort of de john it. <laughs> Dejonify <laughs> the book a little bit. Yeah, you because know, I you know, assume a lot and 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 mentioned quite a quite a bit that because I was raised in a secondhand bookshop, I have I'm I'm a little like Max in in Girl on the Page. I'm a walking anachronism. I I assume everyone else was reading these old dusty books at the same time that I was, but they weren't even in bookshops. So how could anyone <laughs> how could anyone read uh, you know Mademoiselle de Maupin you know and and feel feel that way if you know if they weren't available? And so I, I had all these older. Readers instructing me throughout my my apprenticeship as a as a secondhand book seller for those fifteen years, and so I I was on a different plane. These were eighty year olds talking about the latest hits that they knew, yeah, really. and they were all sixty years in the past. And so I had this I had this skewed version of what everyone else was reading because I was in this alternate universe called secondhand bookshop. And so I have a lot of this stuff which I dump into books, and people have no idea. What I'm talking about. So I have to take them out.
0: <laughs> Don't take them out. You should leave them in. Makes you unique. Yeah. Well, talk to me about it. We'll get into the editing. John, so you talked about having Harry come through and then the other characters and building them up. So talk to me about the structure. When I looked back at the chapters, I noticed that you have four 1960s parts sandwiched between five. 1983 acts. So you sort of got, for want of a better word, four historical parts and then these sort of five more contemporary parts. How did that structure come about? Did you have that structure before you started writing? No, you didn't because Harry came first.
1: That came after Harry. So when I got to Harry, I was like, well, how the hell do I get the other voices in here without ruining Harry's narrative? I wanted Harry to have his say and Harry had his say. And I knew that I was very interested in seeing people from other people's point of view. So these narratives are all first-person narratives. So Simon gets a first-person narrative, Daisy gets one, Harry gets one, and then Jane gets one. But I wanted also the opportunity to paint people from different people's perspectives, to give a kind of an outside view and an inside view at the same time, so that Harry depicts Daisy in one way and Simon depicts Daisy in another and Jane depicts Daisy and yet another. And so we get this 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 fuller version. And so that was the idea that was in my head when I had that, Harry. I was going, okay, how do I how do I do that to give a kind of a, a richer version of these characters seen from inside and outside, from different people's perspectives and from different times scales. And of course, you know, having done that and said that, it kind of led to a massive brick wall, which felt like something too big to climb over and I, I kind of set it aside <laughs> because I was a weak, weak man and I thought, how am I going to do this? And so I, I, I sat on it and thought about it for a, a long time, jotting down because these people started to talk to me because I, I'd allow them in the, into my imagination. So out of my walks, I would jot down things that Simon said and I would jot down things that Daisy said. Now that I knew the full story because Harry had done it, I got I got to have all these different perspectives on it. And each character would have their own, you know, they're the hero of each of their own stories. And so their own perspectives are so different and each one hopefully is so convincing that their perspective is right and their version of things is correct, that there'd be this wonderful contrast. And so I'd have this rich world to play with. So I had this idea and I thought about it and I hate to say it because I was so anti-spreadsheet my whole career at Booktopia and there's a wonderful woman called Kirsty there who, who we were always in battle because the more, the further up I, I rose at Booktopia in my roles, the more spreadsheets came to me, you know, and I had to get a handle on this whole spreadsheet thing. And Kirsty was brilliant at, at, you know, at coercing me into the spreadsheet world, showing me the value of spreadsheets. And so there I was in in despair and I, I, I made a spreadsheet ladder to climb over the wall, <laughs> uh, which I'm embarrassed and I have to admit now in public, but I made a spreadsheet. And I put down Harry's story and I made them into, into chapters and I, I gave little brief summaries on this on this long line in, in yellow with the bits that happen in Harry's life. And then using that, I kind of, over the weeks, built up, without writing them, built up these little notes on Daisy's timeline. And then I did the same with Simon. And down below, I'd click down, do, 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 do. I put a little line down the bottom with Jane, right, and I was like, I really don't want to, yeah, I'll put it down there, but I don't want her to be talking about things. She's just, she's got too much to say. So I I kind of, I hid her down below the bottom of the spreadsheet. And so I started to fill in the bits and pieces, the things that were going on in Simon's life that we didn't see because Harry didn't know about it, stuff that was going on in Daisy's life, all that stuff, and making this story, story richer and richer as I went along until I kind of, developed the confidence to start writing i actually initially started writing daisy and then i went no you're wrong here you have to write simon first you have to give daisy the last word daisy needs to know everything in my head i have to know everything before i can write daisy i want daisy to have the position of power in this so i i put down i started to write simon and simon came very easily to me he's the closest to me in in the story he's 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 got a kind of ambivalent relationship to everything, which I kind of have. And so I was able to, to write him easily, and, and I went through that, so I got him down. And then I, I paused again before I, I got into Daisy because I really wanted to... I knew that she was going to go through a lot. She was the one who was going to change the most in the book. Simon's already older than she is. Harry is like a rock. And I wanted Daisy, who was the youngest at the beginning, and the one who has the most experience in that in that time frame to change. And so I had to really think about her and her voice and developing that over the whole storyline. Because she doesn't age that much. Like she goes from sixteen, seventeen to say twenty one, twenty two max, you know, in that period. So it isn't it isn't a great number of years but it's a great number of experiences for her.
0: Yeah she really matures doesn't she?
1: Yeah and I was also at that time quizzing my parents and my parents-in-law about that period. I'd spent many years reading about England in the 60s and 50s. I was reading at the time I read a few novels written at the time in those periods. I started to read a couple of big fat histories of the 60s just in the, as a background noise without really researching, just reading for pleasure, keeping in the back. So I had a had a constant reminder of the events that were going on at the time and the way in which people dealt with each other and the, and the morality of the day. And so I was able, in those, you know, a lot of people's experiences you know, are of marriage early, women's experience, marriage early, difficulties dealing with, pregnancy unwanted pregnancies horrible drinking men men who are depressed because there's nothing going on england was changing at the time as well so it was coming out finally of the of the depression that it sort of entered in the 30s and didn't really leave and so there were there were a sort of relics these two kinds of people living in the same on the same island you had these people from london who were young making money for the first time and able to Put down payments on cars, which they'd never been able to do before, and, and and rent TVs and all these things that just weren't available. And so they had, you had this weird disparity between those who were still penny pinching and old older generation and this young, Spencer's generation that came through. So I wanted to have all that in there as well. So and I was recognising that Daisy was kind of a representation of this era of of these people, these young people who who were the ones buying the Beatles albums, who were the ones starting the great economic boom that was to continue for a while. So, and then later on, they were a bit too old for the the, the hippie stuff. So I kind of, I I knew that she had to change. I had to really consider her and I really took my time with getting her done. And so she was the longest bit and, and it took me the longest. But when I finished, I felt I was done. And so I, I did what I normally do. Was I let it sit? I gave a month or so just to let it hold all that sit, and did my walking and did more reading. And like I, I read novel after novel after novel. I always do when I finish a finish a book. I just go crazy and read so much. Do
0: you read while you're writing as well?
1: I do, but it's generally slower. I, I don't read yeah. for hours at a time because I'm writing. That time's yeah. taken up by writing. So I dip in and out rather than do what I. I you know, when I finish a book, I'm just like a. A smoker who lights a a cigarette from the last cigarette. I light a a novel from the last novel. You know, that's how I go. I don't, I don't, I just, I pretty much, I'm lying there. I finish, I reach over and pick up another one, drop this one and start reading. Like it's, it's, it's Mm -hmm. insane. It's like I have to get my mind back in order on someone else's fiction.
0: Did Jane start calling to you? Did she?
1: She started talking to me on my walks, just like Harry did and like (laughs) Marmon didn't like. But Jane is a different beast altogether. I loved seeing her from other people's perspectives. I loved it. Every time, every scene I had with her, it was a joy. You know, I really knew that I had a great character. <laughs> but when she started talking to me, she had a different voice to the ones represented by other people. Of course, we all, we all have different voices than, than other people think we have. And so I just started to jot her down. And she wasn't in the right timeline. <laughs> <Gosh>. <laughs> she wasn't there. And so I, I had to go with it. And when she started to talk that way, I was like, that is that's exactly what this needs. And it kind of harped back to the original idea that I had with my old man's story. The old man's story was that he returns to the village that he grew up in anonymously and makes his way back. And he's got a terrible story in his past that has kept him away from his village. And I was going to reveal that story in the old man's story, but I was too young at the time to even conceive of what that might be. In so I had that structure with the two timelines in, a, in my mind early 90s and, and that's what I'd come back to in, in 2019. So I wasn't scared of it. It kind of made sense that Jane would be in a different timeline. So I let her go. I just let her have her way and I'm so happy I did because I think that she gives a structure, a solidity to the story that that these these narratives didn't have. All my narratives the way in which I wrote the narratives, I wanted them to be contemporary narratives. I wanted Harry to be writing about the stuff shortly after the stuff happened. I didn't want him to be looking back as an old man, right? I wanted him to be jotting this stuff down, even though Harry Gantt wasn't a writer at the time. That's the that's the conceit that I had in my head, that Daisy was doing the same, that Simon was doing the same. They weren't looking back after years of experience on this thing, Yeah, They were just living it in the moment. So to have Jane sitting on top with years of experience Telling the story to herself and to others, and to and to meet the writer who knows about her past, and have the journalist trying to dig up her past that we know about because we're what we're witnessing it, you know, firsthand. Yeah. yeah, it was it was delightful. I really enjoyed that aspect of it, and I felt then that I could I could really stop. that right, I'd done, you know, that that was over.
0: From a reader's perspective, the Jane sections said in nineteen eighty three really pull you through as well because and it almost acts like a form of foreshadowing because you know that Jane's got more to say and that something's happened and she will be the one that will provide the device by which we will eventually find out how it all turns out. Which she she is really at the end. It's very clever.
1: Yeah. And so I mean I'd love to have said that oh yes, I came up with that. That early was all on planned. I marked it down in my notebook. Now, <laughs> that that Jane thing happened in a moment of inspiration. Even though I kind of, having buried the Jane timeline, I knew that she had a voice and she wanted to speak. I was just terrified of her at the time, and she's I knew quite
0: terrifying.
1: <laughs> well, so she's an overwhelming voice too. She's so insistent and she's so assured that she could she could have taken over the whole narrative and it become her story telling all these different things and I kind of had to keep her out of that and she was constantly whispering to me saying do something where at the end you realize that I've written all of them you know <laughs> she, was, she, was, she was trying <laughs> so... to own yeah she was trying to own everyone else's stories as well so she's she's an insidious voice in my head and she's still there because she wants me to write her memoir where she ignores all this story because that's not really the, the, the true crux of her existence it doesn't revolve around someone called Daisy. It doesn't revolve around someone called Harry. She's much bigger personality than that. So she's still talking.
0: Yeah. Cause we don't really know much about her writing life really from her no. perspective, do we? I mean, there's no. going to be a lot of story in there for sure. And yeah. her, her, her marriage. We don't, yeah. we only see that yeah. really from the outside. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Potential sequel, John.
1: Potential sequel.
0: Lovely. So let me get this straight. So Harry, you write all of Harry, then Simon, then yep. Daisy. And you write yep. all of these narratives and then you weave them all together at the end.
1: Yeah. I had to cut and paste a lot because wow. I actually wrote them in own separate documents. So they were separate separate documents and I just wrote straight down. And I didn't I, I I didn't really I had my little spreadsheet and I was kind of half following my notes. Sometimes it didn't work and so I didn't actually have to get rid of them. And I'd have to move them because I'd, I'd change the timeline. But generally, the stories had a life of their own, which I followed. I didn't. I don't like to sort of hold things to notes that I wrote on a moment of inspiration. Yeah. So I let. I do let them go. And then, so by the end of it, I had these three strands, and I had to kind of plait them together in some way. And so I, I reread and read and cut them into pieces. I actually had them in pieces, and had them, and eventually had them. So I laid them out in those chapters, and then tried to work out. So having done that, then I had to go rewrite them because things didn't fit. And so I had to make sure they all all the timelines and chronologies and all that sort of stuff kind of made sense.
0: So when you're writing, though, do you have in mind what all your turning points are going to be? Like the novel's very character-driven. How do you manage to keep up that sort of cracking pace and and what do you do to, to maintain the tension?
1: There is, there is, a, there is a kind of awareness of the, of the tension as I'm writing. And I don't know... I think that's just come through experience of doing the writing and people's responses to it. I learned a lot in, in with pacing and tension through the the craziness that was my experience, first experience of publishing the Secret of Lives of Emma. I worked with Bev Cousins at Random House then, now Penguin Random, and yeah, you know, we had a task, a, a ridiculous task for publishers to put out a book within months because Fifty Shades, was everyone knew it was a flat in the pan and you had to get onto it as fast as possible. So when that came out, my manuscript that, that Bev had taken on was divided into two by her. She said, "This, is, I reckon this is a natural end for this and we can make this into book two. And so then we just whittled it down as as quickly as possible with a lot of back and forth between me and Bev. And she pretty much gave me a, the fastest school in in pacing, the class in pacing that you could ever get, and so I, by the time that I had to write book three, which I had no manuscript from, I felt that I was a different writer than the writer that I'd been before, and the writer that, I'd, that I'd, I'd written novels that hadn't gone anywhere, and so those skills then translated themselves into go on the page, and that book was a far easier book to read to, to write than the lessons, and its pacing. All came from the lessons that I got from Bev, where you know the, the chapter endings in both my the lessons and in Go on the Page kind of end with a question. at Each one there's always a sort of this this tension that's left there, and things unexplained at, at every end of a chapter. And I feel that that is one of the reasons why people then start the next chapter. So if I can get that happening and cut it at a place that people may not cut the end of a chapter at. It leaves it leaves room for movement. If I if I'm too too complete, things stall, and I don't like that. I mean, I remember reading a million years ago. I remember reading Clive James's unreliable memoirs, and I was oh, reading it, going, so why, "Why do people why do people read this?" I mean, it's so slow, but every chapter ends with this great joke, yeah. <laughs> and you laugh your ass off. And of course, you're halfway through the next chapter before you realise that nothing much has happened, and then you get this next kick at the end of it where he's done another joke and you're laughing your ass off and you're in another chapter you know so that i i can't there's lots of little tricks that you pick up as you go along as a as a reader that you notice that you know why am i getting pulled through this and so you know that experience plus bev's tutorial gave me the the ability in girl on the page to really maximize that i did bring it back a bit from girl on the page in the lessons as you said it's more character driven so i I was a bit, a bit slower but that trick is still there if you look at them and one of the reviewers actually pointed out and sort of said it was a bad thing but you know i think it's i think as as pacing i think it's it does a a, a great job of keeping things flowing that kind of cliff edge ending to most chapters or or a funny line or a smart take on those on those last last bits where a conversation is is broken where conversations don't often break so you know that you, you know as a reader of life that other things happen after that moment, but I'm not, getting, I'm not bothering with that. I'm just leaving you on that last word, which I think is, is where the last word really should be. The conversations just keep going on, don't they? And so that, that for me creates a lot of pacing between chapters. But rewriting is really where the pacing comes because there's so much that's unnecessary in those first few drafts that you can only see as you go along. And so you can strip that out, which then means it's decluttered, which then means everything's smooth, smoother. And the, more, the, the the less in there to, to trip people up and to less repeating as well, you know, can, makes it flow. The only problem with that is that is that you can get sort of too much and you end up being thought of as superficial. So you're kind of caught.
0: I don't think anyone could accuse you of that with your writing, John. But you were having this extra (laughs) work of having to splice everything together. So I guess when you did the big read through after doing the splice, you'd you'd end maybe a, a Simon chapter with a question that needed to be answered and then think, well, okay, have I got a Daisy section or a Harry section that will fit in here that will sort of work well with the end of that chapter? Like, how did that all work? I cannot get my head around it.
1: Contrast has a lot to do with it. If I, if, it, if a next scene seems similar, then I, I don't want it. If it's another talking scene or if it's set in the same setting, then I try to avoid it. And so those kind of things pop up. So with, with the long holiday in the south of France, I had to create, because they were stuck in the same villa for, for a while, I had to kind of create scenes where they were in different places, they were doing different things to make sure that if one one Daisy chapter followed on from a Simon chapter, that not only was the perspective and the voice different, but the scene was different, even though they were sharing the same space a lot of the time. So that was that was kind of necessary to do. That was a conscious thing that, that I ended up doing to make sure that it wasn't all just flowing on. I did like inserting those Harry chapters into the into the, the sunshine because Harry's stuck at home in Kent in in summer and it's you know it's it's got its attractions but it's not South France, is it? So I wanted that contrast. I wanted to I wanted to ram home that difference between Simon and Harry and not only in wealth and and the the context of, of, of where they are, but also outlook you know, the possibilities, the future possibilities. And so I had, you know, Harry with these very limited prospects, you know, in, in the view of Simon and, and Jane, which they made very plain at one point, that farming is kind of a dead end, even though Harry slowly learns to appreciate just how rich that life can be. So, you know, I needed I needed contrast and I would do that consciously.
0: And then so how, when you sat down to write each scene, how did you reorient yourself with the story in each writing session? Did you have something specific that you wanted to achieve each time you sat down or was it just a matter of racing to the desk and just picking up where you left off?
1: No, no, because it was written in this weird way. They were kind of thematic, each one, each little okay. snippet. So, and it often was, it would happen through, well, I'm a big note taker. You know, so I will take down, you know, as I'm walking, my phone always has the Note app and the Google Doc open, which I've called my notes, and I've I've arranged them so that each character has their own notes section or, or a setting has its own notes section. So I then just scroll down the side and press the, the link that takes me directly to that spot. And so I'm constantly writing notes. Once I'm in a book, you know, the mind just doesn't stop. And so... Anything that's coming in, whether it's family related, whether it's from the TV, whether it's a book I'm reading, whether it's from my walk, news, anything is constantly bouncing in, around in my head and disturbing the other balls that are already there. And they might have nothing to do with the news article about Boris de- declaring the lockdown, and and all I've done is, all I've done is moved a ball in there, and I've got a completely different thought that that. You know that, that Sebastian is, is is in is in America with a new with a new girl. <laughs> oh, I better write that down. And so I developed those kind of things where I just jot those things down, and then I have this enormous pile of random thoughts that I then scroll through. If I'm looking at a, if I if I've got a scene and I know that they're going to go swimming, let's say, like you a scene where, and I and, and for some reason. Simon having a cramp was put down a note, and I and it was it, it went oh, that's that says speaks more than just the cramp, doesn't it? That's that's a turning point where she comes to help him, you know. That's good, I like that. So I put that on a note, but I've also kind of underscored it or po- put it in bold as a possible chapter reason, you know. Like, a, a... Okay. And so when I have found that and I've gone, Oh, that I remember that, yes, that has to happen. How am I going to get that involved? And so then I, I construct this scene around it then when I've done the scene and normally it's very basically structured and done and just down and with very limited dialogue and the rest of it I then go through my notes and look at dialogue that I've dropped in those notes and have a look and see if anything of those which I know has to be in the book somewhere actually is meant for this chapter you know or this scene and so I just pull them out and Ooh, then I go I love go, that
0: I love that that's a great system yeah, so,
1: yeah, so some of them some of them come together all at once the scene that where daisy climbs the pyramid of of young boys on the pontoon yeah. in the in the water and the, the she dives off that whole thing happened in a rush I didn't even know existed and I just went with it right and that happened and then I was like this is great this is a turning point for her now where can this where does this go is this before this or before after that so that, that the process was interesting because it wasn't in my normal style and it was so much more flexible and then i learned that i could really carve those things and change those things which i was never really good at in my early writing career because i didn't want to kill any darlings but i'm, a, I'm an absolute bloodbath now and so <laughs> i i will just cut it down and move it and fix it into that spot because it's perfect now and lose dialogue and lose bits of scene sometimes i'll grab them and put them into the bottom of my notes file and send like I, I call it Tetris or something you know and they sometimes get resurrected, but rarely. But that kind of thing is how I, how I built those. And because I was more flexible and tougher on myself, I was able to just beat them into the right shape and right place in, in the book, which came in handy later on when the publisher saw it.
0: Right. That scene with Daisy helping Simon with the cramp, that scene obviously just came to you, but then you're right. It it goes to character, doesn't it? Because it's kind of a turning point for her and for him because he starts to see her in a different light. And yeah. it's Daisy growing and evolving. And then he yeah. starts to see her more as a woman and as a potential lover as well.
1: And also it also foreshadows their, their later existence.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and it
1: foreshadows their later later relationship because yeah. of of the power structure within that moment. It's kind yes. of like a you know, if, if people say, "Oh, that wouldn't happen," but I say, oh, "Look, look back here. If you yeah. look back here, there's a better about that Yeah, there was uh, a, ch- a changing
0: is- of the guard almost there.
1: Yeah. yeah, exactly.
0: A shift in their relationship. See, you didn't even know you were being clever there, John.
1: Well, can- that meant so much. I mean, when you talk to a lot of writers, a lot of it is experience that is the thing that that does it. I mean, I, I, I chatted to very luckily, I got to chat to to Lee Child. And he's famously a pantser and he does it with a plum, which terrifies nearly every other writer who looks at his process but as i said in that interview with him you know people don't take in just how much you know you know this guy is a gobbler of all information everywhere you go like he would just take in and he'll remember and so for some reason when he sets the book in 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 missouri or whatever he he knows that there's a there's a house there that used to be owned by the ex-president. Why? I don't know. Maybe he read a, an article and is stuck. But it's that kind of thing where he's just relying on his experience and knowledge, sitting back on it. And a lot of writers, especially emerging writers, don't realise, and younger writers realise, just how necessary and, and how much easier it makes the whole process to have that behind you. It gives you so much confidence where you can just start doing these things that you would be terrified of as a younger writer because you're just, you've experienced, you know, you're
0: just qualified. And you're more prepared to trust in that process rather than, absolutely, yeah, having having the faith.
1: The faith in yourself is enormous. Mm. I mean, I, I read Mothering Sunday by Graham Swift. You know, he'd been writing for decades and this novel felt like, Picasso sketch to pay for dinner. You know, he, the dinner. You know, Picasso used to go to dinner and, and he would just do a sketch for, for the, the owner of the restaurant and, and that would pay more than pay for the dinner, right? <laughs> he just hand it over. And it was done so quickly and so briefly but so brilliantly. And it felt like when I was reading Mothering Sunday that Graham Swift got up in the morning, went, oh, I think I'll write a novel. And within the next few days he just knocked that thing out <laughs> without Let without you know. reference to any Without any reference to any books, It's that kind of is that kind of expertise from long years of practice that you know we're all sort of hoping to sort of generate as we go. I mean, obviously that book was a difficult book to write, like every other damn book, but it just felt that way. It felt yeah. like a sketch, It felt like something <laughs> he just knocked off, and he sort of went to his publisher. I have this little thing that I did last week. Would you have? Would you like to have a look at it? You know, <laughs> it's only a it's only a mild sketch. And you know, turned out to be this gorgeous novel.
0: I remember feeling absolutely horrified when I heard the story about Tim Winton writing dirt music and chucking the whole thing out before it was due and then just literally rewriting the whole thing. I don't know. It was in some, I want to say like two weeks or something. Have you heard that story? And no, I haven't, but it yeah. makes sense with that book. And, and just, you know. That, I
1: mean, of, of all the books, that's the fastest for me. So yeah, they, right. They a, oh, who was it? Someone was on Twitter the other day and I uh, were talking about a, a modern writer who does that every time. What? Throws out, the, writes the book, throws out the manuscripts and rewrites re- 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 it every time. I can't that's, remember who it was.
0: That's trusting the process.
1: Ad- <laughs> Holy <laughs> hell, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, can you imagine? Oh, I have oh. files and files and files of every tiny change, every draft, every, like there's not There's not a bit that I don't put in a, in a file on my computer and save. I mean, to do to destroy yeah. <laughs> it's a year's work, and then hope that the mind would just be able to put it back in a better, better state is something else.
0: Yeah, if not killing the darlings, just kind of putting them into a coma for a while and reviving them at a better time.
1: <laughs> I can imagine. I can. I can imagine doing an experiment where you kept the other draft and yeah. then you started afresh. But this, but getting rid of it all together is just too much for me. I'd, be, I'd just be in a ball on the ground crying.
0: OK. I want to talk about voice, John. You're brilliant okay. at using voice to differentiate between the characters. Can you tell us about the process of getting inside the voice of each character? I feel like there was a lot of John talking to himself on the Kent Downs.
1: There was a lot. I, I've always, I've always talked to myself in those kind of ways working out problems you know whether whether it be a decision about work or relationships or you know there's there's always like a a conference call in my head where where I discuss these things and some of some of the conference call attendees make up silly voices you know they talk in different ways and I'm I'm terrible at accents and and all and all that in 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 life but all my inner voices have great accents you know they 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 talk from, from different perspectives. And so I think I think from that comes this desire to create different characters and create different voices. I don't think I'm particularly good at it, and I don't think there are that many writers who are. I think a lot of the convincing of those is less about the actual words being used and more the content being expressed in a lot of people's writing. There are absolute geniuses at character, right? They're, they stand out. But a lot of other writers, when I, when I think about character and when I'm looking at, at writers, it's a lot of other things that are convincing us of this difference. And I rely on a lot of those things as well in the lessons to convince you that you're hearing different voices. Because when I, when I looked at Harry, because I got this question early, yay, and I looked at Harry and I looked at some of the language he's using, if I was going back and being really harsh, I would I would be crossing out certain words because I go he, that's not a word that Harry would use, and I would be much more aggressive on that. But I, I really wasn't wasn't going to do that. I, I don't I don't like the limiting factor that comes in in the inability to express oneself through certain words. Right. So there's the desire to create Harry who has limited education, works on a farm, but the richness of his internal life. I didn't really want to lose because of a failure of his own external expression. So I kind of cheated a little bit with Harry and and mixed things together. And so you'll find words that won't be used by him but are the fastest route to his meaning. So I just chucked it in. Right. So I, 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 was, I was doing that sort of thing. Mainly his character comes from the limits of his experience. Right? I knew very much that there are things that he can't know. And by limiting that in, in my narrative with Harry speaking, it gave a sense of his character through those. And I've, I find those kind of things very interesting when, when building character because it's one of those problems with, with, with a first-person narrative is that the writer and the character are always at war. The writer knows so much more than the character. And so if there's got to be a kind of a truce at some point where – some of the writer's knowledge goes into the character to make the reading of that that internal voice clearer and easier. But the knowledge that the, the writer has can't really be transferred. Otherwise, it becomes unreal and, and readers kind of look up and go, no, they can't know that. This wouldn't be something that they know. And in the editing of Harry, there were a number of times where I had to just excise bits because I went, no, he can't. Too There's much. nothing... Yeah, I, I don't deny him a very rich internal life. I want him to have that. I want him to be at war with his own self about his feelings. I want him to feel overwhelmed by those feelings and I want him to be able to express that. So I kind of had to fudge in, in, in those little bits.
0: And does writing in first person help you with that? Does that make it easier yeah, for you because you're inhabiting? It does
1: because, yeah, because you're inhabiting. Although... You know, Simon's dismissal of Harry also gives you a lot of information about Harry. Harry appears to others. And so we know that Harry is lovely and got this inner world and is, his upbringing is absolutely horrible. But he doesn't share, share that with anyone but Daisy. Mm-hmm. So everyone else gets this sort kind of gruff exterior. And so we get to see him as others see him at the same time. So we kind of temper our knowledge of this of this rich internal life with this exterior that we're seeing clump through certain chapters.
0: <laughs> yeah. I want us to read a couple of bits to demonstrate. I want a teachable moment, John, because I really think that your voice as Daisy and then your voice as Harry show, uh, they're just a great example of how you differentiate between those characters and and what they are like. Should I read Daisy and you read Simon? I just, there's a section on page 19 that I'm going to read, listeners if you wanna read along. So this is Daisy. This is Daisy's voice. Home was dull, dull, dull. Back at school, I might have mooched about the grounds and hallways, pretending I was an unloved orphan, the heroine of a novel, stuck at school writing poetry while all my friends were in the bosom of their loving families. I might have even found that Mr Carpenter, my art history teacher, was friendless too, slaving away in the library, writing and researching some brilliant monograph on Caravaggio and needing my assistance and love. So that's Daisy. Daisy's voice is kind of familiar and conversational and slightly melodramatic. It's, you know, the voice of a a teenage girl who has a slight crush on her art history teacher. And then Harry, if you could read a bit of Harry on page
1: 31. Right, Harry, yep. I walked to Fairstead Hill with my dog, Ralph. It was cold and windy at the top. I sat by the grass-covered path up from Armstead and smoked. I was waiting for the girl i had met at the dance. I was waiting for Daisy. I'd walked into the village hall in Dimbridge and had seen her immediately standing behind the refreshments table with her mother. She noticed me too. But her mother kept her on a tight leash, wouldn't let her dance. I'd gone to the refreshments table again and again, exchanging smiles and pleases and thank yous. We spent most of the night looking at each other. Having been denied a dance, I had to wait to the very end when it was time to clean up and her mother was distracted to introduce myself exchange a few words with her. There's Harry.
0: There's Harry. So there's such a contrast there, sort of these short, choppy sentences, very fact-based, very direct. So I just feel like you use this wonderful combination of word choice and sentence length as well as the content to convey character.
1: Definitely, especially in those kind of more descriptive scenes, I find myself doing that where I feel that I'm really in his outward voice, yeah, when he's telling us something rather than when he's reflecting. Yeah. Like you know, later on that same chapter he describes Daisy. She spoke easily, as though she owned all the words. Like this is a guy who is is being overwhelmed by her eloquence (laughs) and her, her her verbiosity. She just doesn't stop talking, and of course she's nervous, as we we do. But he's never he's never encountered anyone like this. No one talks in his house. Like there's, they're just grunts in his his own house.
0: They would never talk about home, being in the bosom of their families, sort of thing.
1: Never, no, nothing like that. The reason I I went heavily into the boarding school mode with Daisy's early appearances in the book, she's comes straight from boarding school she's a big reader of austens and brontes and dickens and all these kind of people and and so her life is from books like her parents are lovely and everything and but dull in her mind and so she is kind of romanticized everything and her friends at school have helped her because they're all doing the same thing and so that voice comes out strongly and then very shortly after that as she gets this little tiny bit of wave of confidence in that first affair with, with with Harry, things start to slow down in her, and and they're not as dreamlike. You know, she's she's kind of butted up against reality, and so her language changes as as that happens. She gets a little bit more forthright as well. Which, yeah. yeah, so that that changes. Hopefully, that changes. Aware people are aware of that in those first few chapters that they're kind of a, a drift away from that an original. Childlike voice. And by the end of it, you know, she's different again.
0: Yeah, she becomes much more jaded as life knocks her about and and her confidence is rocked. And then she comes into her own. It's a wonderful character. So, John, can you take us through that whole editorial process? So, who is your editor on this?
1: Well, first up, I send it in, and Catherine Mill at HarperCollins.
0: Catherine, oh, Uh, God, she's wonderful.
1: Yeah. So, she's behind. Trent Dalton and Holly and I mean just one success after another coming out of, mm. of Harper. Uh, she's, she's kind of like the story whisperer or the story wrangler. So she gets it and she reads it and she sends this massive report back to to the to the author and goes through the whole thing. So it's like it's less a line by line kind of examination of, of what is written. It's more of a how the whole thing works as a whole what needs to be shifted you know, what needs to go in my case this novel was much bigger than it ends up being on the shelf in the bookshop so it was 180,000 words and it ended up being 120,000 words so you can imagine oh. yeah it's a big big change over the next few months you know it, it's it's interesting the dynamic there because writers and editors and publishers the relationship changes as things go along so, and moods change and confidence changes. I was at an absolute bottom when that report came back, you know, so I had no fight in me at all and when, that, when that turned up. It was the lockdown. It was the, the, the world was gone to pieces. There was a long wait before the report came. So there's a whole lot of factors that kind of put in, you know, but it was a very depressing time for everyone on the planet. You know, it wasn't a great time. And so I kind of rolled over far more than I might have today on that particular, on those kind of things. And so I I kind of went back to the book and rewrote it from those notes. I mean, they're extensive. It's almost like 10,000-word essay on your book. It's the kind of thing that Catherine does.
0: What was the big thing?
1: Well, the big thing was it's too bloody big, John. (laughs) (laughs) The story's not big enough to, to hold this weight. And so, you know, that's a big shock when you've spent all that time so there's kind of a blowback where you kind of mm-hmm. feel like you've just been hit by a new bomb. And she sort of even mentioned the, the number that we preferred, I prefer it was down near the 120 mark. Right. And so I, I kind of went over it again and, and brought it down. And a lot of that is, as I've said before, is looking at these chapters and, and looking at the extra fat on them and, and making them leaner and doing mm-hmm. that. But she had a lot to say about certain story arcs that were in there and things that were going on outside of the main story that she thought were just unnecessary that you could get rid of. So there was a lot of staring at the wind out the window and being mournful and wishing that I'd never written anything in my life and why anyone <laughs> to be. In- and getting mortal and until I-, I I picked up the knife and sharpened it and started to cut more aggressively. And when I handed that in, I thought, "I'm going to get such applause here." You know, this is. You know, and writers shouldn't have to do this to their own babies. You know, this is like Abraham and Isaac, you know, just made me kill Isaac. Even God wasn't that mean. <laughs> um, you know, and it didn't come back. Like It took a while to come back from that. And even then there was more and I was like, you're killing me. You're killing me here. <laughs> you want more changes? <sighs> um, and, and so, you know, I went through it all again that way and then they gave it to an outsourced editor who – did the copy edit, which was unbelievable. Like I, I almost gave up. I almost decided not to write again. On well, the copy it, edit, the copy edit was devastating.
0: What? Why? Why was the copy edit? Oh, just edit so... just the
1: the tone, the the tone of it. I mean, then there was a lot taken out, like a oh. ton taken out. She just went again, and took liberties with so much. And so I was like, it was mainly red. I was looking for white bits. Oh on the document that came back and I was like, this can't be right. And so there was a bit of back and forth where I, I, I said, Look, I can't agree with this. I can't agree with that. There's no way I'm getting rid of this. And so there was, a, there was a more of a fight then. I kind of, I'd, I'd kind of been beaten to the point where I didn't, I didn't care anymore. I wasn't frightened of anything. There was nothing more to lose. <laughs> so I thought I'd fight back. And so I fought back and and, and won, won some ground. And so Having won some ground, I kind of got a little bit more more excited about the project again, and <laughs> yeah. sort of tried to pick myself up and and look at it. I mean, Catherine is great at what she does, so you know, she saw the story that was the ma- the most important part and focused laser focus on that. And went, that's your story in there. All the other stuff is distraction. Get rid of the distractions. Go back and look at this main main part. And so you know, I did. I went back. And then the, the other editor came through and that there was just I didn't think they got it, like what I was doing. I don't think they got it. And they didn't trust me. That was the other thing. I I can I can feel that Catherine trusts me, but I couldn't feel this person trust me. They didn't know who I was, right? And they didn't they didn't care. And I didn't get any of that. And and thankfully Scott Forbes at HarperCollins, who is the editor in charge of my novel and of Go on the Page, was critical of that at that edit as well, And so he was behind the scenes, batting for the things that I was trying to keep going, and and so we kind of half used it, half not that 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 edit, and we put things back together. And- oh, God, <laughs> but, it even, just sounds but even but even then, ah, oh, yeah. And when and when it got to a point, and I'd done so much, I realised that they hadn't seen that some of these things were just dead limbs sitting there. Oh. And so I had to cut them. So I was absolutely in love with Simon's father. I loved him. I created this wonderful father. And he only gets a tiny brief walk on role in novel yeah. as it did He had a whole story that he's dad. And their relationship was built over a whole period. <clears throat> but I realized at, at the point that the novel got to, it was unnecessary. He had to go. And they're like, You sure? I'm like, gone.
0: Yeah, and his wife Audrey is also a fabulous character too, his young wife.
1: Yeah, and so I focus more on her Mm. and leave him in the shadow a bit more. Mm -hmm. He's he's kind of a reflection. We see him through reflection through what Simon talks about and what Audrey talks about, Mm -hmm. and so he's kind of a richer character in in that sense because of those. But all of his other scenes all took out, and so we did actually reduce the the word count. (laughs) By the end, to that ridiculous number from that huge chunk,
0: <laughs> to a not a doorstopper, yeah.
1: not a doorstopper. So it's gone from from looking like a little life to looking more like <laughs> your, your average novel.
0: Now, John, I'm I have a question from the lovely Joanna Nell, who we both know. You know Jo quite well as well, don't you? Jo's great. Yeah, no,
1: she's, she's absolutely marvellous. Her, her novels. I mean, we we kind of got published at the same time.
0: Yeah, that's and she
1: right. is far ahead of me. Like she just is. So much more productive than I am. I'm mortified by my, my lack of production compared to her bestseller after bestseller, absolutely brilliant.
0: Yeah, she's amazing, hey? So Joe's question was, since you're so w- widely and well-read, how do you keep your own unique writing voice, which is fantastic, without being overly influenced by any of the great authors you admire? So kind of coming full circle to our first discussion there.
1: I can't, if you, you, you can't really get into someone's, train tracks of their style if you're dropping it and picking up another one. Like if I was to go, like I remember when I read, I I met Thomas Hardy for the first time as a, as an adult reader. And it was pretty much, I have to read everything that Thomas Hardy's ever read or I'll die. I'm going to read every. And so I just read Thomas Hardy again, next one, again, next one, give it to me, give it to me. And I just doubled down as many as I could. And at that stage, I was writing a book set in 1815 in in England. So, yay! It helped me a lot. Okay. And and there's a lot of um, a lot of Hardy in that in that book. It would only be like that where I have spent months in a writer's head, and all I've done is examine and, and write down great passages from their work. That I'm completely at least steeped in it with the language, the word usage. I don't even remember what people speak like in the in the modern day. It's only something like that where I go, ooh, you better be careful, you If you're gonna write a book set in a contemporary Mossman, it's gonna sound rather weird because you have Hardy in your head. You're actually the <laughs> blood is pulsing with the with the words of, of of Hardy. So in those cases, yeah, definitely beware, be be watchful. But my general reading is that I will read a brown paged book by an Italian writer in the 1950s one day, and then I'll read second, the, the, the latest book by Rachel Cusk, and then I'll, I'll, I'll read a lead child, and then I'll read uh, History of England. And then, you know, so I'm not ever really falling into the train tracks of someone's mind. I am aware of if I'm reading a big fatty, which takes me months, so like Clarissa, which took me a long time to read, and is so, you start thinking in those, in that language of the, of the 18th century. And when I when I have my moments where I, all, all I do is, is rewatch Shakespeare or I read Shakespeare, you know, you this, you know, you, even even the inner voice starts doing the these and those and all that crap. And so I'm very conscious of the the ones that are really overwhelm you with their style. You have got to be aware, but immediately you put it down; it looks weird.
0: <laughs> you know, yeah. So. so, what are you working on at the moment, John?
1: I have since writing the lessons. I've written two short novels, which came to me in a flash, pretty much. Oh,
0: Catherine um, will be happy about that. Two short novels.
1: <laughs> one, one is about a woman who is in the middle of a crisis and can't really work out what the crisis is until she works out that it is that she no longer wants to be a mother, even though she's got a twelve-year-old and ten-year-old. So yeah, pretty. Pretty difficult stuff. And 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 later on I read I, I watched The Lost Daughter and went, damn it. But oh. <laughs> it's very it's 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 very different in the approach.
0: God, I love Olivia uh, Coleman.
1: Yeah, that was brilliant. Very
0: good.
1: Another one I'm I've been working on is set here just around Folkestone where I'm living at the moment in Kent. And it's it's two narratives combined again, but it is. One in 2019 and one in 1947, and set in the same cottage, the, the two different women live in the same cottage but in different times. So it's, it's kind of a mix between the two time, the areas, but also the same problems that are arising for women with their relationships with themselves, with their sisters, and with the men in their lives. And so there's a kind of a continuum borne about by the circumstances of being human in different in different periods of, of time and the same kind of similar kind of resolution but very difficult choices to be made by both by both some protagonists so on both in both areas. So that's something and I've just been playing around at the moment with a kind of a thriller kind of thing. So I'm I'm a thriller. Just just playing at the moment. It's just, it's, it's it's a bit of silliness. I wrote a I wrote a first chapter and I went, Wow. Wow. I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I'm just—I'm going with it at the moment. I'm just waiting for the other two to do something. So, um, yeah, okay. you know, it takes the process is so long. Mm. Publishing is so slow. If anyone gets into this world like I did and published three books in six months, I thought it was all going to be like that. No, <laughs> everything is slow. Waiting for emails. Oh my god.
0: Yeah. So all you can do is keep writing.
1: Yeah. Why not?
0: Well, they—they <laughs> they all sound wonderful. So hopefully we'll get another John Purcell in 2023. Three or
1: four, hopefully. Yeah. Three or
0: four. Okay. We'll see. Okay. John, thank you so much for today. I could keep talking all night and it's all all morning for you, so you, you need to get back to the page. But so much for coming on and having such a big, long, meandering chat. Hopefully it wasn't as scary as you thought it was going to be.
1: No, no, it was great. It was like, it was, it was was nothing like the exams or the essays I had to do in the the past. This this was, uh, I think you teased a lot out of me. It's it's, it's the magic of the, uh, of the interviewer getting stuff out.
0: (laughs) And yes, if anyone wants to know what we're referring to in terms of exams and scary questions, just go to our, our Twitter feed from yesterday and have a look at our exchange there. It was very funny. Kept me laughing. John, before I go, I must give a quick shout out to Jessica Detman, our mutual friend. Jess somehow divined that I wanted to have you on the podcast. And while we were having drinks in Sydney a couple of months ago, she said to you, oh, John, have you been on Michelle's podcast? And you said, no, I haven't. And that was a perfect segue for me to say, John, would you like to come on my podcast? And you said, I'd love to. And here we are. So thanks, Jess.
1: Thanks, Jess. Yeah, she's, she's awesome. I love Jess.
0: She's so good. Have a great day and uh, hopefully we'll catch up with drinks again soon.
1: Thank you very much.
0: There you go, John Purcell. I hope you enjoyed that. I really could have kept talking to John about books and writing for hours. He's such an interesting guy. You'll find links to John's website and socials and a link to buy a copy of the lessons in the show notes. Now on to this month's guest. I first met Mark Smith earlier this year when he asked me to build his website. And whenever I build a website for an author, I like to read their books. Well, what a ride. I started the first book in Mark's young adult trilogy, The Road to Winter, and basically just didn't stop until I'd read all three books, literally turning the last page of one book and picking up the next. They are just so good. He's a brilliant writer, and it's absolutely no wonder to me that his books are on the school curriculum all over Australia. And because of that, Mark spends a great deal of time when he's not writing on the road in schools, talking to high school kids about writing and about the themes in his books of survival and prejudice and honor and courage. My 19-year-old son Jack saw the book sitting on my desk and said, oh, I remember that book. It's really good. And it really is. Mark has created characters that just stay with you. And the story is such a page turner. I was obsessed. So I couldn't have been more delighted when Mark agreed to come on the podcast and share his craft and process behind the writing of the first book in the trilogy, The Road to Winter. Let me tell you a little bit about The Road to Winter. Finn is alone in Angauri, relying on his survival skills and affinity with the natural landscape to remain alive in a world torn apart by a deadly virus and threatened by violent gangs. Apart from his loyal dog Rowdy and contact with the elderly Ray, Finn's life is lonely. He keeps himself busy hunting and gathering and surfing to keep his grief at bay. Rose, a siley, which is what Mark calls the asylum seekers, Pursued by the brutal Ramage and his Wilder's gang, arrives in Angauri and Finn's life is thrown out of balance. He needs to draw on every ounce of resilience and initiative to help find Rose's missing sister, Cass. Along the way, Finn's encounters with characters who represent the best and worst of humanity, teach him much about the adult world of prejudice, violence, self-interest, as well as bravery, honour, kindness and love. If you're interested in writing young adult fiction, this is a chance to ask one of the best YA authors about his writing process. So I'd love you to send in your writing questions for Mark. You can grab a copy of The Road to Winter from wherever you get your books. And once you've read it, it's not that long, flick me your questions for Mark via email or on Instagram or Facebook. You'll find links to everything on writersbookclubpodcast.com as always, you have the chance to win a copy of this month's book. So to enter and win a copy of The Road to Winter, just look for the giveaway post on my Instagram or Facebook feeds. The entries will close on September the 12th. But of course, if you're listening to this podcast in the future, there's a new giveaway every month. So just follow me on Instagram or Facebook, and you'll always be in the know. There's one other very exciting thing that I wanted to let you know about. Now, some of you already know that in my day job, I'm a website designer. I specialize in author websites. Well, a few months ago, the lovely Valerie Koo from the Australian Writers' Centre asked if I'd be interested in creating a course to help authors develop a blueprint for their websites. Of course, I jumped at the chance and the course is now live and available as a self-paced online course. So it's 18 modules covering everything from how to structure your website, what to include on your homepage, your books page, your bio page, all your pages, how to go about getting the best headshots, I show you how to create a palette for your brand, so your colour and font combinations. And of course, I talk about newsletters and blogs and SEO and so much more. Now, just to be clear, the course doesn't teach you the technical side of building a whole website. The aim of the course is to help you plan out exactly what your author website needs so that you can brief a web designer or build it yourself. So if you're at the stage where you need to get your website sorted, you can find out more and sign up for the course at writercenter.com.au and just search for your author website. And of course, please don't hesitate to get in touch with me if you'd like to learn more. Okay, that's it for this month. You'll find all the show notes for this episode right here in your podcast app or on the website at writersbookclubpodcast.com. Such a mouthful. I recorded today's episode on the beautiful unceded lands of the Garrigal people of the Eora Nation. Thanks for listening, and I'll look forward to catching you next month.
1: Until then, happy writing.